This is a download from News Talk 106 to 108. To download other programmes or for more information, go to newstalk.ie. Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. Storm Warning, world-renowned American preacher and author Billy Graham writes, If the human race would turn from its evil ways and return to God, putting behind its sins of disobedience, idolatry, pride, greed and belligerence, and all the various aberrations that lead to war, the possibility of peace exists. But when we see society as it is with anger and violence around us, who can anticipate such a transformation? Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's great to have your company. What is driving Americans back to their Bibles? On this week's show, Matthew Avery Sutton, author of American Apocalypse, talks megachurches, true believers, and the impact of premillennial thinking on American politics. And how do we start over again and forgive? Folio Prize nominee Jenny Offal joins me later to discuss the bitter aftermath of marital betrayal as played out in her stunning new novel, Department of Speculation. This is a show about prophecy and politics, urgency and despair, paranoia and the place of adultery in modern fiction. But first, is Armageddon just around the corner? American Apocalypse, Matthew Avery Sutton powerfully observes, we now live in a world shaped by evangelicals' apocalyptic hopes, dreams and nightmares. Evangelicals, he argues, have helped to make and break presidential candidates, influenced US foreign policy and shaped the debates on the most important social and cultural issues of our time. In terms of religion, they have moved from provocative outsiders to consummate insiders. Well, Matthew's engrossing new book, American Apocalypse, has just been published by Harvard University Press and charts the fascinating history, politics and personal stories of some of America's most influential and controversial preachers, from Billy Sunday, Rick Warren, Hal Lindsay to Jerry Fowell and Billy Graham. This book is without doubt an illuminating, robust and objective examination of the rise and evolution of American fundamentalism, a movement which now claims almost 30% of the US population. Matthew argues Armageddon has been good to Billy Graham and good to American evangelicals as a whole. He says, in anticipating the imminent end of the world, fundamentalists paradoxically transformed it. Well, over the weekend, I got a hold of Matthew Avery Sutton, the Edward Orr Mayor, Professor of History at Washington State University. I asked Matthew about the nature of apocalyptic thinking and how if you think the world will end, well then, that will possibly shape how you live in the world, how you vote, how you understand the economy and how you view global events. Let's take a listen. 
you believe that the world is going to end, that Jesus is coming back soon, that's going to shape everything about how you live and how you act. And one of the arguments historians have tried to, to make or tried to understand about these evangelicals is what makes them so active, why they're so involved in this world, why they're so engaged in politics. And the idea has traditionally been, it seemed counterintuitive, that they had the sense of despair, the sense that Jesus is coming back, the world's going to end, so what can you do about it? But in fact, what I've found by actually you know, getting into the archives, reading their sermons, reading the letters, reading their correspondence, was that what that does is it actually gives them an increased sense that they had better act and they had better act now. There's an urgency, there's an excitement. The clock's ticking down and they have to get as much done as quickly as possible. And so that begins to affect the way they're going to live their lives in just about every way. And of course, we've had some tragic events in our recent past and all of these events have filtered into the machine of the politics of apocalypse, haven't they? That's just it. That uh, you know, There have been apocalyptic movements throughout church history since New Testament times and they often you know, last for a few years and then they disappear. But I think what's made this one so lasting, what's sustained it, is the you know the horrors of the 20th century. First World War One, then the Great Depression, then World War Two, then atomic weapons, then the Cold War, then 9/11, global warming. All of these kinds of things have reinforced their sense that the world is really spiraling out of control. There's nothing we can do to stop it. Our only hope is that Jesus is going to come back and essentially pull the true believers off the earth and save them, while everybody else is destined to destruction. And is it the most powerful religious movement in the U.S. today? Give some startling figures, and I'm just going to go through some of them with you. you you say that 79% of U.S. Christians believe in the second coming. That's startling. It is, and that's one of the things that was interesting to me in doing this was in some ways apocalypticism has waned compared to where it was in the 1930s and 1940s, sort of in the context of fascism and World War II. As bad as things are today, I don't think they're, they look as bad to people as they did in you know 1939 or 1940. But nevertheless, the ideas have persisted, and it gives them a sense of peace and a sense of security as well, that, that when you look at the world and you can't explain what's going on and you don't like what's going on, or you feel dislocation or anxiety, there's comfort in believing that Jesus is coming soon, that Jesus is going to right all wrongs and you know straighten all paths. How do they go from being outsiders to insiders and infiltrating US foreign policy, presidential elections, the White House? When you look at it, the significance of apocalyptic thinking is everywhere today in mainstream American society. No, exactly. And it really was just the way things have progressed over time that during World War One, they were very much considered the religious outsiders. They were a small minority, kind of on the fringes of American religious life, these self-identified fundamentalists. And then World War Two, they began to gain some power. They began to organize. They created a group called the National Association of Evangelicals. They began calling themselves evangelicals instead of fundamentalists as a move to, to kind of look more mainstream and more historic to tie into their older, deeper roots. But then most essentially, it was the rise of particular individuals like Billy Graham who were able to to balance apocalypticism with a smart political savviness and an access to power and an access to presidents. And so, you know, slowly just over time, and, and especially the Cold War as well, created a context in which all Americans, not just these apocalyptic theological believers, but all Americans believed that humankind was destined to, to destroy itself. And so all of these things worked together to make them one of the most powerful, most effective, most accomplished re- religious movements in the U.S. that can then influence policy, influence politics, and essentially has had the ear of every president since Truman. And Billy Graham is a formidable preacher, isn't he? I've seen him in action and he's quite something. A 
tremendous communicator in so many different ways whether you agree what he's saying or not the guy has something magical about him he's yeah. unbelievably charismatic can we talk about some of the other personalities like Charles E. Fuller you've great stuff on Jerry Falwell Billy Sunday who was possibly the guy who was responsible for bringing evangelism into the mainstream can you tell me about some of these guys because they have yeah, incredible backstories don't they they do there's you know they're they come from all walks of life some of them are highly educated fairly elite americans some of them are come out of the working class they're poor they're working their way up from nothing um, amy semple mcpherson one of the few women who was an important leader in the 1920s and 30s was extremely charismatic she you know she was an extraordinary individual who was able to blend this kind of apocalypticism with this very theatrical preaching where she integrated kind of the tricks and the tools of hollywood and broadway with her message to make it entertaining to draw people to her but then at the same time she preached apocalypse. Billy Sunday, as you mentioned, had been a ball player, a baseball player, who then was converted and was able to kind of take his ability to communicate with regular people, his very populist rhetoric to the masses. And then after World War II, there were people like Billy Graham, but there were also these these authors, these writers, who were able to write these compelling compelling books that really indicated that in their minds, you know, time was coming to an end. And so Hal Lindsey wrote a book in 1970 called The Late Great Planet Earth, which became the best-selling nonfiction book in the U.S. in the decade of the 1970s, just convincing people that the world was coming to an end. And then in the 1990s and into the early 2000s, Tim LaHaye wrote a series of novels called Left Behind, where he lays out this apocalyptic theology, and they've sold so far 83 million copies of these novels. And so there's been an ability for, for these leaders, for these evangelists, to use media, whether it was radio in the 20s and 30s, or television in the 50s and 60s, or the internet in the 1990s and 2000s, or books, to communicate their message in a way that very few other religious groups have been able to do. The status of the Bible is critical. Can Can you maybe talk me through how the Bible is seen as the sole authority in matters of doctrine and how significant it is to pre-millennial thinking? Sure, yeah. It it was central to them. They believed that the Bible laid out this essentially this framework, and it was it was uh, sort of hidden. You have to work really hard to kind of figure it out. But if you take verses, relatively obscure Bible verses from Ezekiel and from Daniel and from some of Jesus's sermons in Matthew and from the Book of Revelation, and you you sort of extract these verses and you put them together, it's like putting together a puzzle. You have all these individual pieces, but once they're all together, suddenly you can see the whole thing. And the whole thing then lays out this timeline of history, where we've been, where we are, and where we're going. And so for them, that becomes the core component. And what they believed is that in this timeline, there would be certain signs that would tell us when we were nearing the second coming of Christ. And so that becomes the incentive then for studying global events, for seeing what was going on, and for then making the argument that, in fact, we are living in the end times. And that was really crystallised, Matt, when Jerry Falwell went on the Pat Robinson show, wasn't it? Because he, he said something to the the sins of um, today, had you know, the sins of Americans had angered God, and that God had withdrawn his protection from America. Exactly. Crazy in one way, but it, it could make sense if you are quite vulnerable and paranoid. People like Jerry Falwell are tapping into something that is there, those insecurities that we all have. Exactly. And, and I think part of that too is, is an American sense, the, you know, the old idea of American exceptionalism, this idea that America has been a superpower because God has blessed America, because America has been a Christian nation, and they would, you know, they would interpret that as a Protestant nation. And so then when they see these tragic events happen, things like 9-11, then they start to wonder, what have we done wrong? What has America done wrong? Is God you know, withdrawn his blessings or his protection. And so, you know, as 
as China grows in power, as Putin is making aggressive moves in Eastern Europe, there are lots of things that are going on that are making Americans insecure and making them vulnerable. And so that drives them back to these apocalyptic readings of their Bibles. And how is the African-American evangelical movement, how does that differ from the, let's say, the white evangelists? Is there a difference? Are we seeing any any difference in discourse? There is. And that was one of the, the most interesting things for me to study in writing this book. Most historians have not taken African-American evangelicals seriously in terms of comparing them to white evangelicals. And what I found was that in many cases, they started with the exact same theological premises, the same apocalyptic theology, but they took it to very different conclusions. And so for a white fundamentalist or evangelical, they would see, you know, great sins as overreaching of the federal government, as, you know, the government bureaucracy, as individual moral sins, things like abortion or gay rights, homosexuality. For African-Americans, they saw sins in a very different way. They would believe that we were nearing the end of times and that injustice was falling on the earth by looking at racial inequality, by looking at Jim Crow segregation, by looking at disenfranchisement, by losing their ability to vote, and just simple racism and um, xenophobia. And so for African-Americans, the, the theological premises led to very different political conclusions. And what that, I think, reveals is the ways in which white evangelicals were reading the Bible very much through the lens of their race and their class, as much as just their own theology. But presumably they all feel that with the second coming of Christ, that Christ will reward the good and punish the bad. How they sell that story or what they deliberately pick on is somewhat nuanced or different. Is that it? Exactly. Yeah, that Jesus is coming for judgment and so they want to be prepared. And so that's why they believe that Jesus has called them to occupy you know, until he returns. And so they have this motivation, this incentive to to make the world, to make their nation, to make their communities, to make their churches as holy and righteous as possible. But how they define holy and righteous is going to vary depending on, you know, the issues that are important to them. And so for African-Americans, they'll see racial or economic justice as being holy and righteous, where white Americans, many of them just are not aware of racial inequalities or economic inequalities for them that's just not something they're thinking about. Now one of the really interesting statistics that you have in American Apocalypse is that 50% of Americans have read the Bible in the past year in some way to learn about the future. That really surprised me. You know and honestly it surprised me too because in some ways the apocalypticism seems to have waned since the George W. Bush years as evangelicals you know essentially became the U.S. administration. They began investing more time in this world less time and waiting for the next world. But then when these polls were done, it became really clear that evangelicals are still convinced Jesus is coming back very soon. And they're still very much believe, they very much believe that the Bible is a roadmap for the future, that it's essentially God wrote, you know, thousands of years ago, what was going to happen in the last days and we're living in those last days. And so this is why they're so careful about lining up global events with with the Bible. They're just convinced that in everything that's going on in Asia or in Europe or in the States or in France or with you know Islam, that all of these things were foretold, were foreshadowed. And so they're looking to find evidence of where these things match up with the prophecies of Ezekiel or Daniel or Revelation. Some of the evangelical churches in America would be very put out by being accused of being fundamentalists of some sort. Do you think that they have a point to argue there or not? Oh, they do. And that's, you know, there are many Christians in the States, Protestants, as well as, of course, Catholics, who would not subscribe to this theology. Um, But the interesting thing that sociologists have tracked is in the last 50 years, it's the evangelical churches that have been growing, that have been thriving, that are, you know, creating all these mega churches, that are creating the television networks, that are selling the books, while um, liberal Protestants have really waned, that many of their churches are having a hard time, you know, keeping their doors open, filling up on Sundays, keeping the offerings coming in. And so so the question has been, why, why have evangelicals been so successful? And that's part 
part of what I'm trying to answer in the book is I think their success is their is their motivation that they've they've had such a drive to action that it's it's really a genius theology in many ways in terms of just keeping people engaged and motivated and working hard because again they recognize that Jesus is coming back to judge them and he's going to be back soon. But the irony is there, Matt, that you've got a lot of these mega churches all across the states um, with these charismatic leaders who personally have benefited enormously from this movement. It's been quite lucrative for them. It has been, but one of the things that I that was clear to me, and you know, I can never judge people's motives, is that I think most of the folks that I that I follow in the book are true believers. I think there are very few that are charlatans. Now there are one or two that I think were probably in it to make money that that figured out a way to tap into an audience to sell books. But I think that's that's a very small minority, just a handful of people. I think the vast majority are true believers. And part of where I came to that conclusion was really by just reading their private correspondence, reading their diaries, reading the materials that they've left behind, at least for those who have passed on whose materials were available. I mean, these, you know, in some cases in their letters, they, they represent even more anxiety and even more confidence that Jesus is coming back than they would publicly say. I mean, they were just sure as they looked at you know, the rise of Hitler, or the rise of Mussolini, or Stalin, or atomic weapons, they were just convinced, or even in the 1970s, with the rise of OPEC and the oil crisis and the importance, growing importance of the Middle East, they were just sure that their reading of the Bible was accurate and that they had that they, better than any other group of Americans, could explain what was going on. Now, you end the book on a rather ironic note, and you say, in anticipating the imminent end of the world, fundamentalists paradoxically have transformed it. Yeah, I think that's exactly right, that because Jesus hasn't come back, because they've been wrong, but because they've been so engaged in trying to prepare the world for Jesus' coming, that you know, over the course of the last 150 years, the span of the book, we can just see their influence growing so substantially that they've begun to have a major influence on politics. And one of the questions that drove me into this research was to try to understand why fundamentalists and evangelicals have been so critical of the government, why they've been against the state. And, you know, my research was beginning in the context of Obamacare and some of the debates over whether or not we should have federal health care, national health care in the U.S. And I couldn't understand why these devoted Christians would be against government-run health care. I could understand why they were against you know, gay rights. I could understand why they didn't want to liberalize abortion laws. But why in the world would you be against health care? And that drove me back to thinking about their relationship to the state and their criticism of the federal government. And one of the things that I found was that they believe that in the end times, the Antichrist, this great demonic leader who's going to take power right before Jesus comes back, but that the Antichrist is going to work through government. He's going to work through federal governments. He's going to work through international government. And so the more that individuals cede their rights to federal government, the less liberties, the less rights they're going to have. And so that's going to set the stage for the rise of the Antichrist. And so what that's done is it's created a powerful anti-statism, a powerful sense that they need to fight the growth of government, which has then been just a boon for the Republican Party in the U.S. for the anti-government movement, for things like the Tea Party. Um, And so the theology is very different for these fundamentalists and evangelicals than your typical Republican. But what it's done is they've been able to unify together, to work together to fight the growth of the government, which then means fighting things like national health care. Which is, as how you put it, a blend of despair and activism. Can I ask you, though, when you go on websites like raptureready.com, which tracks how close we are to Armageddon, how has that and all the letters that you've read and all the archives and you've read some tremendously powerful speeches and you've had access to extraordinary minds and extraordinary people. How has that shaped your own personal thinking and understanding about the world and where we're going? Has it made you any way more vulnerable or has it 
refreshed you in another way? No, for me, I think it's it's more. And this is why I love history. This is why I was drawn to history. Is it, it allows me history allows me to step out of the horrors of our generation and to realize that every generation faces its own horrors. So as bad as things are and as bad as things look, you know, right now in a variety of different ways, it's there's sort of comfort for me in knowing that things have always been bad and and that and yet at the same time there's always good in that. That there are always people who find positive ways to live their lives and are able to make contributions. And so while my theology is not the theology of these apocalypticists, my politics is not the politics of these apocalypticists, I recognize in them a sincere effort to make the world a better place. And while I disagree with them on how we should be doing that, um, I I think they are sincere and I think they are doing the best they can. And so it it makes me empathetic to them, but it also doesn't make me, you know, a believer. In fact, just the opposite, that I recognize how wrong they've gotten it over the course of the 20th century. And and so I can find some comfort in that. And do you think that the politics of apocalypse, maybe by 2050, will be as prevalent in American culture and also will have morally infused in some way the political agenda of that culture? You know, it's hard to say. I I said earlier, I think it's waning a little bit in the U.S. The apocalypticism may be on its way out. But at the same time, evangelicals have been so successful in sending missionaries and are having such growth in places like Latin America and Africa, and they're exporting this kind of apocalyptic idea. It'll really be interesting if the developing world embraces some of this apocalypticism and then uses it to turn against America or other first world powers. Um, so, it, you know, I, I don't see a very hopeful future. Um, I see more chaos, but that's that's what I see in the past as well. That's just kind of the way my mind is, is structured, I think.
And that was Matty Wavery Sutton, American Apocalypse, is published by Belknap Press, an imprint of Harvard University Press, and retails at about 25 euros in hardback. Okay, we're going to take a short break, and when we get back, I have a very interesting lady for you to meet. It's the talented and hugely creative Jenny Offal, author of Department of Speculation. Talking books on News Talk 106 to 108. And you're very welcome back to Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company. Now, if you've missed any of our recent shows, they're all up as podcasts on Newstalk.com and I think they're fairly straightforward to download. Newstalk has some very handy apps for Android, iPhone and iPad. And of course, if you want to get in contact with me, well, drop me a line at TalkingBooks at Newstalk.com. I'm all up for ideas. Okay, let's now move into a bit of raw, juicy and experimental fiction. Tomorrow evening, the much-anticipated 2015 Folio Prize will be announced at a plush award ceremony at the British Library. And true to form, this year's shortlisted books are adventurous, poetic and wonderfully profound. The shortlist includes novelists from Kenya, India, America, the UK and Ireland. So what unique reads made it onto this year's shortlist? Well, here is a quick run through. 10.04 by Ben Lerner. All My Puny Sorrows by Miriam Toes. Dust by Yvonne Akiambo Ovar. Family Life by Akil Sharma. How to Be Both by Ali Smith. Nora Webster by Colm Tobin. Outline by Rachel Cusk. And Department of Speculation by Jenny Offal. Jenny Offal teaches creative writing at Columbia University in New York. Her first book, Last Things, published in 1999, was chosen as the best book of the year by the New York Times and the Guardian newspaper and was a finalist for the LA Times First Fiction Prize. Her latest read, Department of Speculation, is a witty, hugely original and deeply moving portrait of a failing marriage and the exhaustion, frustration and boredom experienced in early motherhood. For lovers of gritty, arty and philosophical fiction, you will cherish this book. It's top class. Well, over the weekend, I got a chance to talk to Jenny Offal from our home in New York. Let's take a listen. Hi, I'm Jenny Offal. I wrote a novel called Department of Speculation, which is a story of a midlife crack-up of sorts. Um, It's the story of a marriage and of how it unfolds over many years, both the the joyful times and the times where things seem to be coming a bit unhinged, with digressions into stories about Arctic explorers, Stoics, Buddhists, and a whole variety of strange speculations. Now, Jenny, your book made me laugh so much. I screamed at one stage. It's also uh, very philosophical. And it got me thinking that when we go into relationships, we have so many expectations of relationships. And ultimately, the pressures that we put can destroy relationships, really, can't they? I think that's true. And I think that's, that's a bit of a modern idea that we should be able to draw so much from our marriage. And I think in... 
in even just my grandparents' era, or certainly my great-grandparents, there was a sense that that was an important part of life, but one that you certainly didn't need to draw all your sustenance from. That was for friends or for your work or perhaps drawn from your religious or philosophical beliefs. But now I think we've sort of put all our eggs in one basket. How difficult was a book to write? I know you spent the last 15 years writing children's books, you're an academic, but I imagine that there's so many literary and philosophical references in this book that it's a a book that was very, very well thought out. It was very difficult to write. I I always find writing sort of ridiculously difficult. One of the uh, things about this book is that it came, it rose from the ashes a little bit of a more conventional linear book, which was also revolved around some of these questions about marriage and parenthood and the desire to, to make art, but it was told from the point of view of a second wife and a stepdaughter. At a certain point, I, I just tore it all up and, and started over in this fragmentary way. And I think I finally, sometimes you just write the book you want to read. And um, once I let myself write it in a totally fragmentary way, I wrote it on note cards and almost backed into it. Uh, it started to take a shape that was interesting to me again. And it's quite a short book. It takes a couple of hours to read and it's done like diary entries in one way or little short little snippets or conversations. Yet for some reason it is extraordinarily intense. I really, I read a lot of uh, poetry as well as fiction and, and there's something about the when I read a book of poetry I love, I love the ability to go back to it, to feel like the first reading I'm reading perhaps for just the language itself for the, the, the moments of intensity and emotion. And then um, if I really like it, I'll, I'll go back and read again and see if there's moments I missed. And, you know, that's my hope as a fiction writer, too, that perhaps there's something in the first reading and something in the second reading. Um, but I just I really like books that are both funny and sad. And there's not quite as many of them in the world as I would like. I knew that if I was going to write a book that had this much darkness in it that it, it would help if it if it had some, some flashes of wit. <laughs> it is very honest, Jenny. It's very, very witty and engaging. You know, our narrator is at times disgusted with herself, very, very angry, feels huge resentment towards her husband. Yet she shows a very funny, warm side as well. She's a very broad character, isn't she? Well, I, I hope so. I mean, I think I think we all are if, if we show enough of ourselves. I think, you know, we, we all, to to borrow Whitman's phrase, contain multitudes. And I I think one of the things that's interesting about a long marriage at points is that we can forget that the other person contains multitudes and we can turn them into just really what is a sliver of themselves. One of the things that's been really interesting to me from writing this novel is sometimes I meet married couples where one read it and then made the other one read it. Um, Sometimes it's the husband, sometimes it's the wife. And They'll tell me that they had a really interesting talk about who they felt like they were at the beginning of the marriage, who they feel like they are now, or at least perceived to be, and who and who they really are underneath it all. Um, and I, I just think that there's those, we all fall into habits of seeing. And um, part of this book is about what happens when you take away that conventional uh, vision that you have of a person and you have to expand it. And within all of that, the coziness, thinking that your partner will be there for life and will mm-hmm. always love you no matter what, no matter what your moods, no matter if you're frustrated, if you feel that you're becoming very boring, that they're always going to be there and that circumstances change and they can change rapidly. I think so. And I, I remember before I was married, talking to a friend of mine who was uh, about 10 years older and had been married for many years. And, and she said to me, well, I'm very glad I've stayed married this long. I mean, there have been good years and there have been bad years. And I think I sort of gasped. I thought, years? 
good years, bad years. Um, but of course, there are there there is this incredible continuum of experience in a marriage and in any long relationship. And I was sort of doing something that that felt for me at least very difficult when I was doing it, which was I was trying to to get a sense of a span of time in this book and also do it in the most compressed way possible because I I wanted it to be a philosophical novel, but part of me, the feminist in me, rejects the idea that the only kind of novel that's philosophical is is a thousand pages and a doorstop for your door. The one thing that struck me, Jenny, when I um, was was reading the book was you rapidly get into a very intense relationship with the narrator and you're rooting for her, you're fighting for her. And I'm wondering whether you've been at book signings or on public transport or at different events. Have women and men come up to you and told you their stories of infidelity? I have gotten that a little bit, not perhaps as much as I expected to. I'm not on social media, so I think that um, sometimes not having that back door to reach me. Um, I think, you know, obviously if someone's standing in a book line with 10 people behind them, they may not necessarily, um, you know, want to tell their most personal story. But yes, I've, I've, I've certainly been um, the confession booth at times for, for tales of, of one side or the other. And, you know, I really tried in, in this novel to think about all the different points of this triangle. You know, what's it like to be the girl in the book? What's it like to be the wife? What's it like to be the husband? So the stories I've heard are actually on all, on, on all of those spectrums, which has been really interesting. It's interesting to hear about people. People's conception often of affairs is that they've kind of fallen into it. And so they're trying to make their own narrative about how that happened. Because often, you know, often any of the people in it don't think, oh, I'm not that sort of person. You know, I'm not that sort of person whose wife would cheat on me, who would cheat on my wife, who would take up with a married man. There's a lot of different versions of that. But I think that's that's part of of why it's so interesting, the stories of affairs. Um, even after all these years, it's the sort of the subterranean life, you know, the life that is not seen. I'm just wondering, though, did some people think that this really was your story rather than you, a writer, writing oh, a story? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, you know, I, I, think, I think that was something I, I, I expected. And obviously, I played around a lot and put a lot of details that match up with my own life. I did notice that whenever, whenever I mention a detail about my life, to new people I've met who've read the book, I can tell, I can see them noting if it doesn't match up. <laughs> I, was, I, was at a, I was at a literary festival and I mentioned um, something about being an only child or I was talking a bit about being an interfaith family where my husband's Jewish and I'm not. And, you know, I could sort of see people being like, well, wait a minute. <laughs> but, I mean, of course, all fiction um, has autobiographical elements, certainly emotional autobiographical elements. And, and it also has invention and it also has things that have been overheard. And, and it, you know, it tends to be other writers don't tend to assume that because they know about the process of, of alchemy that happens. But I think I, I wrote it in a very personal way and I made everyone very close to the narrator and her thoughts so it certainly makes sense to me that that, that would be what people are, are thinking as they read it. It's also very interesting though to look at marital betrayal and whether we can forgive or not or what you're willing to forgive or not. You know, I, I came across this quote after I wrote the book that I thought was so interesting by the writer Catherine Ann Porter and it was it was this, it was Physical infidelity is a signal, the notice given, that all fidelities are undermined. And I thought that was so interesting because I think that it really is a placeholder in some ways for all the ways that our life can suddenly not resemble the one 
we thought we were in. Sometimes this happens through sickness. Sometimes this happens through some other dislocation. Anything that is, is not where we end up, not where we thought we would be, I think, is also a chance for us to suddenly be more awake to our world and to our life and to those around us. And, and so that process of becoming more attentive, becoming more awake, it's something that the narrator, who lives very much in her head, she's sort of a head-in-a-jar type person, it's something that, that she's slowly doing as, as her life changes around her. And one of the tipping points in any relationship can be parenthood. And mm-hmm. certainly for the narrator, it's all consuming. She spends late nights worrying about, you know, what's going to happen next, worrying about health issues, worrying about all sorts of things that she can't control. Mm-hmm. And that can change a marriage also, can't it? I think so. I, I mean, I can remember um, a moment when um, just after my daughter was born where my husband looked at me and he said, oh, my God, when do we stop white knuckling it? And then I didn't answer, and we we just kept looking at each other, and we both started laughing. And I said, I guess never. (laughs) And it's a very strange thing to go from living in in a world where you really, I mean, you're responsible in some ways for your partner, but mostly you're responsible for your your own life and your own choices. And and, um, it's just a very different thing to realize that, that there's this other creature in the world that, that you've chosen to bring into the world and that you are now, you must look after. And it, it's, it's an exhilarating thing, but it's also a terrifying thing. And you hit on the boredom and the frustration and not just the anguish, but the intense dislocation, social dislocation that young mothers have or new mothers have when they're mm-hmm. trying to balance friendships, relationships, sleep and how sleep deprivation, how that impacts on everything. There's some very raw lines in the book on that? Well, I do think that it's one of those things that it fades after it's over, but I can still spot women on the street who are in the middle of it. You know, they have a sort of a look on their face like a bomb bomb went off and they're, they're pushing their stroller down the street with their baby in it. And I, I think that for me, at least, part of the, the feeling of alienation was in some ways less from my my child and my husband at times and more from just the the chorus of of strangers telling me that this was the best time in my life, the best moment in my life, and also that it was going to pass so quickly and that I was going to be sad that I that it was gone. I felt like there was almost no room to experience what was actually happening at the moment. I was being told what I should think and what I should feel. And I was being, uh, it was very clear that to speak outside of those lines was, was to risk being, um, being thought a bad mother or certainly an ungrateful mother because you don't want to suggest that that this is not what you wanted, but I think it's also it's a kind of censoring of of experience to have to always say this is this is the best moment of my life, even when it's perhaps one of the most challenging. Can I ask you about the end of the book, Jenny? Mm-hmm. It's somewhat elusive. Now I don't want to spoil it for readers, but do you think that we can start over and? Mm. Do you think that there are times in our lives when we actually have the capacity to start over and there are other times when, for a range of other different reasons, that we just can't? Is it all about timing? I think it's about timing sometimes and I think it's also about perhaps an openness to wander into a wilderness you haven't been in before. I mean, I think the, the Catherine Ann Porter quotation that I was, was mentioning, you know, it says, it's the notice that all fidelities might be undermined. And we don't like to think that, do we? We don't like to think that the, the ground we stand on isn't solid. And yet, if you go and look at, you know, sort of the great mystics' teachings or, or the, the fundamental ideas that come up again and again in philosophy, 
it's not that there's fidelities. It's, it's that you need to learn to live in a state of, of uncertainty and, and perhaps embrace that as part of what it means to truly be alive. And so I think that it's about, it's about that openness to not knowing, not knowing if, if things are going to turn out the way you want and being open to the way they do turn out, uh, which, you know, incidentally is a lot like writing. Um, I think, at least for me, the process of writing it completely begins in not knowing and uncertainty. And it's a very, it's a very slow process of watching fragments um, begin to take on a narrative.
And that was American novelist Jenny Offal. Department of Speculation is published by Granta and is well worth the 15 euros. OK, that's it for Talking Books for another week. I hope you enjoyed the show. Next week, Talking Books will be meeting with two very wise and interesting souls, Sheila Hancock and Stephen Weinberg. The music today comes from Carlos Kippa and Poppy Ackroyd. Well, all that's left for me to do now is to say a big thank you to Ronan Brunock, who helped out with this week's show, and the lovely Marianne Kennedy and Paddy Dunahoo on sound. We've been Talking Books. I'd like to end this week's show with a smart observation from Ken Wilbur. Too close to touch, too obvious to see. Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. Thanks for listening to this News Talk 106 to 108 podcast. To download other programs or for more information, go to newstalk.ie.